and welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natale. With me is my delightful co-host, Sarah, and our recurring guest, uh, Frank Casella. Glad to be here. Yes. And today we're going to finish up with the 1924 Summer Games, uh, and we're going to start with swimming. Uh, aquatics, swimming, diving, and water polo. Fancy falling, fancy falling sideways through the water, and, and horse, and no, horses in there's polo. No, there's no horses in water polo. There's a lot of treading water. Water polo is hard. Yeah, that sounds awful. It is a terrible game. Uh, <laughs> but ponies. <laughs> yeah, they do the horse diving. Horse oh, swimming. Is that, in, is that in the Olympics? No. Oh. No, it's never in the Olympics. No no wild hearts can't be broken. Special edition. You should watch that. That is a good movie. It's um, a great movie. <laughs> anyway, the big show of the Olympics, every Olympics, is and was the track and field competition. But aquatics is a close second, and this year had some, some serious superstars emerged. And especially in the men's. But there were some really interesting ones in the women as well. Because, uh, we'll get into this, women's swimming took off. Uh, there were 11 swimming events at the 1924 Olympics, six for men and five for women, which is a significant change from 1920 when there were 10 total, seven for men and three for women. So reaching parity on the events there. And the, a major reason for this was the social changes wrought by the First World War. <laughs> so we don't really have time or space or, you know, within the purview of this podcast to get into all of the changes that war had on the western world but one of the things that changed with it with the shattering of the old world social order was the role of women in society and for a while it was kind of up in the air as to what exactly the role of women in society should be uh i mean you can even say that in the fashion like pre-war fashion included corsets and post-war fashion was who has, who has time for that? Yeah, they, they did not anymore. They were like, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. It's like you used all the corset material for cannons and tanks, and then we decided we don't want you to switch the factories back, so yeah. just maybe don't do that. I gotta get the books for the excerpts. But why would you make a Joker origin story movie? I don't understand the motivation behind it. We're not talking about the Joker he's popular, movie. and the kids love him. <laughs> oh, so much. Speaking of books... Uh, again, our major sources are the Olympics, Strangest Moments, though I don't know if we're getting any of these this time. Are, are any of these moments strange? This is all very normal, everything we've ever talked you about. You slept through the one we were talking about, the oh. Titanic survivor. Someone died <laughs> on the Titanic. I forgot that that was the His one you were referring to. His dad died, and then I thought he... we were talking about the gun. Oh yeah, somebody got shot in the foot. <laughs> that one I heard. Okay. And then there was a Titanic survivor in the tennis competition. It's fine. Anyway, Olympic Strangest Moments, although I don't know if we have any excerpts from this one in this episode uh, by Jeff Tibbles and then we have The Games, A Global History of the Olympics by David Goldblatt. We definitely have excerpts from this one in this episode. De Coubertin was decidedly old school in what women should, in what he thought women should do in society. As recently as 1912, he was resisting the inclusion of women's sports in the games at all and he had a quote about this. Uh, Sarah, if you wanted to read that one from the bottom of the page going on to the next page there. Okay. The Olympic Games must be reserved for men. 
We must continue to try to achieve the following definition. The solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism with internationalism as a base, loyalty as a means, art for its setting, and female applause as its reward. Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> Does that mean that they banned men from attending the Olympics? Because that sounds like what the I statement be, implies. That would be pretty gay if there were men at the Olympics. Can you imagine? <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> it is Greek. No. <laughs> no, that sounds fake. Um, it's very male and very platonic. Okay. Plato was a Greek. I'm going to say that sounds true. Uh... Anyway, swimming, particularly in the post-war era, was one area of sports in which women's participation was encouraged. Oh, I was going to say, they, you know women can't float. Yeah, so well, they, the they figured this out in the 20s. Oh, uh, okay. Not, or maybe during the war, and then they kept doing <laughs> yeah, it. So they kept throwing broads into the sea, and they didn't sink, so they were like, maybe they can be in the Olympics. Uh, not only, not only uh, was swimming encouraged as an acceptable sport for women... Uh, but they were allowed to wear revealing fashion without being harassed by the police. <laughs> a lot going on there. I'm just yeah. going to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, cops. Yeah. <laughs> Journalists took full advantage of the appearance of scantily clad competitors and covered women swimming extensively. You know, maybe men should be banned from the Olympics. <laughs> this is the sense that I'm getting. And that here. was what the statement clearly indicated. <laughs> I think we're all on the same page with the group, okay. at least on that one point. All right. <laughs> uh, swimming associations frequently obsessed over clothing regulations, debating whether or not female swimmers should be required to wear robes at all times when they were not actually in the water. Oh, I thought you were going to say also in the water. <laughs> 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 I mean, if you look at, like, pictures of old bathing costumes, they're, they call like, them. They, they have wear, pants. Yeah. Like, they're... But at this point, they were, like, swimsuits. They were still much more m modest than... They cover the whole butt. Yeah. Although the women's uh, swimsuits in the Olympics, I think, now are pretty... Uh, not very terribly revealing, either. No, like... Although uh, they, they did, like, make new regulations about how you have to have certain amounts of your skin exposed because those remember for a while oh, everyone was yeah. wearing like super long they, suits they end up being oh like the hydrophobic much, like you could just super, skim through the water like, yeah, yeah they, they broke they smashed all the old records because yeah. they basically like if wore wrap, shark skin if we yeah. wrap the athlete in a torpedo and just shoot them across the pool they're much faster <laughs> essentially that's what they were doing and then they were like mm, no you can't wear those anymore <laughs> So it actually went backwards. Full they circle. Were, they were too modest. It's an Ouroboros. <laughs> like, like, stop covering yourself in, like, oil so that you just <laughs> slide through the water with no resistance. Um, I don't know how oil and water work. Just like that. Okay. Okay. But uh, also, competitive swimming. This is this was really interesting. This is something I didn't know. Competitive swimming became something of an urban subculture, particularly among Jewish women in the United States and Central Europe. A lot of the top female swimming, swimmers of the time were Jewish women from cities. Became like part of the culture hmm. to be a really good swimmer. And then a lot of the women swimmers we're talking about today are Jewish uh, from America. Two such women who became major stars during the 1924 games were Gertrude Ederly from New York and Sybil Bauer from Chicago. Gertrude Ederly was a favorite heading into the games. She was a member of the WSA, Women's Swimming Association, which produced a raft of famous female swimmers, including, among them, Esther Williams. Uh, the She was never an Olympic athlete, but she did a lot of swimming in movies, and they still had, like, those vintage-style swimsuits or, like, from the Esther Williams line. 
Um, Ederle held 29 national and international titles between 1921 and 1925. Her performance at the 1924 games were less than stellar. She won two bronzes and a gold in the freestyle relay, which isn't really less than stellar, but it was like below what they yeah, were expecting. Less than stellar, only three Olympic medals. But it, was, it wasn't as many as they were expecting. Uh, uh, Underperforming, like, under like I guess, yeah. Like, um... Is she won in the 100-meter freestyle and the 400-meter freestyle. Uh, this did earn her a spot in the New York ticker tape parade upon the team's return. But her biggest athletic accomplishment came in 1926 when she became the first woman to swim the English Channel and did it faster than any man who had done it before her. This got her a ticker tape parade all to herself. <laughs> yes, and let's not gloss over that because ticker tape parades are a pretty big deal. New York City, tic- New York City ticker tape parades are a lot of work to put together and clean up. Yeah. And I don't think the city does not do them very often. Mm-hmm. The Wikipedia page listing all the people who've received that honor is pretty short, and a lot of those are people who've been to space. <laughs> yeah, and they did it for, like, the entire Olympic team in 1924. Yeah. So um, the fact that she got one by herself in 26. But, I mean, that was a massive accomplishment. So, uh, the English Channel, which I, for a while people thought was impossible to swim the English Channel. I mean, I think it is. There was just a, <laughs> there was a woman who just did it three times, like, in a row. Back to back? Yeah, she went back and forth. So... Was she wearing one of those bathing suits that lets you <laughs> scream across the water like you're made of oil? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Sybil Bauer was the big star of the women's competition. She was a backstroke champion, setting 23 records during her career, which lasted from 1921 to 1926. During a meet in Bermuda in 1922, she became the first woman to break a man's record in the 440-yard backstroke with a time of 6 minutes, 24 seconds, 24.8 seconds, about 4 seconds ahead of the previous record. It's like half a lap. Like... Four seconds is a pretty significant lead. Yeah. Uh, there was a popular movement to allow her to compete against the men in the Olympics, but that didn't happen. They were talking about that. Maybe they weren't talking about letting her compete, but they were talking about that woman um, in Rio who were was beating her male teammates in warm-ups. And, like, they were getting all up in their feelings about it. And she was like, I don't pay attention to them. I just swim. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, she won a gold medal in the 100-meter backstroke at the 1924 Olympics, breaking the record, which was the only medal she won, as that was the only backstroke event. The press reporting on this was very quick to remind us how girly she was. So, Frank, read that excerpt. Oh, boy. Right there. Let me bust out my 1920s reporter voice. Oh, please. Yes. Miss Bauer wears her hair cut short, as so many girl swimmers do, for comfort as well as becomingness. She is not spoiled by her success and enjoys life very much. <laughs> I mean, that covers all the important You're making highlights. a face at me as if no, it was the not, wrong voice No, it's not the voice. Use. The voice was perfect. I was more the content. <laughs> yeah. But she, she wears her hair cut short, which is re- fine. Yeah, how did she do? Uh, she, they don't say. She, yeah, they don't. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> just not covering. It. It's fine. That's they not important. They just talk about her haircut. <laughs> and it stayed the same for a hundred years. <laughs> we did it, everyone. That's my cat, Mimi. She's excellent comedic timing. Uh... Anyway, Sybil Bauer was engaged to Ed Sullivan. And the horse? No, that... Uh, the, uh, okay. The, <laughs> the talk show host. 
but unfortunately, developed cancer and died during her senior year of college in 1927. Oh, jeez. She was 23 years old. She was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1967. As exciting and important as the women's competition was, there were some noteworthy things happening in the men's competition as well. The big stars of the American team, along with Australia and Sweden, putting in very good shows, uh... Oh, big stars were the American team, along with Australia and Sweden, putting in very good shows. Duke Kahanamoku was joined by his brother Samuel, and together they helped Johnny Weissmuller in the American sweep of the freestyle event. Johnny won gold, Duke silver, and Samuel bronze. So you guys have heard of Johnny Weissmuller, right? No. Tarzan? I've heard of Tarzan. Yeah, he was Tarzan in the movies. He did the Tarzan yodel yell. Ah, He's the guy who did that. You know that the sound I'm making, but better. Like, way better than what I just did. That was like the Lion King song that you just did. Yeah, that's... That's That's Johnny Weissmuller. That's what it's based on. (laughs) We're going to drop it in post into the the audio. I'm not... I I mean, I don't have the ability to make that happen. I probably won't. Uh, Along with the Hawaiians, Weissmuller himself was a different kind of Olympian. He was born in Romania... Uh, but his family soon moved to Illinois, where he grew up in the coal mining areas and, and poor areas of Chicago. At the age of nine, he contracted polio, and his doctor suggested that he take up swimming to help improve his health. He was not the well-educated, well-heeled Olympians of the pre-war era, or even the, you know, that guy who was playing tennis. He was in a boarding school in Switzerland, and that's why he was on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. He, was, mm-hmm. he and his dad were going back. Well, that's why he got off the Titanic, because yeah. he was one of the Ritz passengers. <laughs> well, his dad died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, having dropped out of, uh, Johnny Weissmuller dropped out of high school to go work. While he was working as an elevator operator and bellboy at the Illinois Athletic Club, he was noticed by swimming coach William Bachrock. Bachrock helped started to train him. By 1921, he won the national championship for the 50-yard and 220-yard freestyle. In 1922, he broke Duke Kahanamoku's record in the 100-meter freestyle and then won the gold in the Olympics. The 400-meter race was the most highly anticipated of all of his events. Emile-Georges Drigny, who was in charge of the swimming events, Described it this way, and I have the excerpt of this one on my tablet, this block quote, Sarah, if you want to read that. Just the block quote? Mm-hmm. Out of all the Olympic swimming events, the 400 meter was probably the one with the most tightly contested final. Much was expected of the meeting of three great champions in this Olympic competition. Johnny Weissmuller, Australia's boy Charlie, and Sweden's Arne Borg. And indeed, from start to finish, the contest between these true mermen produced an aquatic battle the likes of which we have seldom seen and might never see again. This man clearly did not see Aquaman. Sorry, <laughs> Australia's boy who? Boy Just Charlie. Charlie. He's like Cher. Is his name Boy Charlie or is I he Charlie, comma, was, Australia's boy? I was wondering that. Is the boy capitalized? More, yes. But so is Australia. And so is Charlie. <laughs> And Arnie Borg from Sweden. Yeah, we're just moving right past that one. It's more. We have so many questions about Australia's boy. It's all about Australia's boy, Charlie. I had questions about it as I was halfway through. And then I got to Merman and things kind of took a turn. Maybe he has the black lung. All right, Borg Borg was in the lead by the first 100 meters. Borg. Yeah. You guys really just skipped past We were sleeping on Arn Borg. Arnie Borg? Arn Borg sounds. Sweden's boy Borg. (laughs) 
You're welcome. Sweden's boy <laughs> I'm sorry. Borg. I'm sorry, Frank is broken. <laughs> Sweden's boy Borg was in the lead by the first 100 meters. He and Weissmuller broke away from the rest of the pack and drove the race to the end. At 200 meters, Weissmuller took the lead, but in the last 100 meters, Borg had overtaken him. Drigny has another report about what happened then, the last 50 meters, if you want to finish us off. Yeah. Or does Frank want to finish us? Do you want to do it? It's the same reporter, so we'll do the same boys. The final 50 meters saw an epic battle that encapsulated the very essence of the sport. Johnny Weissmuller, giving every, lounce, every last ounce of energy, managed one final push to overtake Arnie Borg with a, one and a half meters to go, while Charlton, who was finishing the strongest out of the three, was right on the heels of the Swedish champion. Now he's Charlton? <laughs> <laughs> One and a half meters is like five feet, right? Like, yeah. That's so little to space. Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck on Australia's boy Charlie. <laughs> Charlton. Who's now Charlton? Charlton Charlie. Australia's is his name? Boy. Is his name Charlie Charlton? Boy Charlton. <laughs> that can't be right. Australia his Charlton. His first name must be Charlton. They wouldn't abbreviate a last name to a nickname, would they? I don't know what's happening. I don't know either, but Weissmuller didn't just win, he shattered the existing record. Later, he led the American team to winning the two, the 4 by 200 meter freestyle relay, but the stellar display didn't win him any local acclaim. The French crowds routinely booed him whenever he entered the pool. Nevertheless, this won't be the last time we talk about Weissmuller in this Olympics or in other Olympics, so we'll talk more about his post-games career in the series on the 1928 games. Spoilers. So this... This guy is the best Olympic swimmer that America has ever fielded, I assume. I At this like point. For yeah, ever. Like Who would have beaten him? Mark Spitz first, and, and, and then Michael Phelps. I feel like you're being purposefully <laughs> obtuse right yes. now, and we don't enjoy that on this okay. podcast. But, I mean, Are you sure that's not why you keep bringing me back? We love learning. <laughs> but, I mean, like... Factual information. Like, Weissmuller was the first really big swimming superstar. Mark Spitz was after that, like... In the seventies, that's quite a quite a gap. Yeah, and then it was Jason Momoa. Yes. Yeah, that sounds right. See, two can play at this game. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, the Americans totally dominated the swimming event. Out of thirty-three medals up for grab, they won nineteen: five bronze, five silver, and nine gold. Great Britain, Sweden, and Australia all won four each, and Belgium and Hungary won a single medal each. Diving. Which includes fancy, fancy falling, fancy, fancy falling, water entry, fancy water entry. The Americans were even more dominant in the diving competition, particularly the women. There are five events in total, three for men and two for women. For the men, there were three meter springboard, 10 meter platform and plain high diving. For the women, there were three meter springboard and 10 meter platform. 71 divers, 45 men and 26 women competed in these events representing 14 nations. Actually, in looking this up, I figured that all the nations that sent men would also send women, but there was one where they only sent women. Austria. In retrospect, it's entirely possible their diving team hadn't recovered from the war yet, but I don't know that for sure, so it's just a speculation about why there were no men. It certainly seems to fit the timeline. Yeah, I mean, that would be a possible explanation. Um, What the actual explanation is, I don't know. Uh, But that would be my guess. There's not a lot I was able to find about the diving in 1924, unfortunately. I know that the Americans won 11 of the 15 medals available, including all but one of the women's medals. Hjordis, Hjordis Turple of Sweden won bronze in the 10-meter platform for the women, so she was the one who kept 
the Americans from winning from winning all of the medals. I mean, good for her. Yeah, <laughs> she has two umlauts in her name, and Are, her, on the same letter. No, uh, stacked umlauts. Her first name Hirdis starts H J. Oh, umlaut R D I S. That's how I'm guessing. That's how you say it, Mimi. I know I'm insulting them. Um, they also won. Uh, what do you want? Uh, all of the. Th- blah, blah, blah. They also won all of the three meter springboard and ten meter platform in the men's competition. In the plane high diving, the gold the gold went to Dick Eve of Australia. Australia's boy Dick. <laughs> and the silver to John Jansen of Sweden and bronze to Harold Clark of Great Britain. There was one line in Goldblatt's The Games about the diving competition to suggest all was not well in the women's competition. Hmm. Quote, clearly biased national judging roused the crowd, sections of which threatened to judge, throw the judges in the pool and required the intervention of the gendarmerie in the stands, who are the armed per- Parisian police. Like, not all Parisian police have guns. That's the equivalent of SWAT. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, hey. The SWAT, the French SWAT had to go into the stands to keep the crowd from rioting during the diving competition. Unfortunately, this was all I was able to find out about it because nobody else had anything. The records abruptly cease when they deploy this one. I don't, I mean, nothing that I had access to had any other uh, talk about this. Uh, But... These problems are part of why Weissmuller had such a frosty reception in the races. Uh, Water polo. Thirteen nations competed in the water polo tournament. France won gold, Belgium silver, and the United States won bronze. Johnny Weissmuller was on the American team, which is where his one bronze medal comes from. Oh, so it was everyone else's fault. Yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they'd only had a team full of him. Yeah. yeah. If they had a team full of him, first of all, it'd be incredibly good looking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a movie star for decades. Like he was again, movie. it's. Have you seen Tarzan? The no. Old, okay. No. But have you, you read guys, the novel that it's based on? No. Because he's in that too. Books. <laughs> Reading. <laughs> you, you are sitting next to a bookcase. What are those? <laughs> All right. Uh, this was the last time the Bergval system would be used. So let's talk a little bit about what this was, because we mentioned it a lot of times, and I can't remember the last time we actually explained it. All the teams that lost to the gold medal team then entered another tournament to determine who won the silver medal. Right, this is the one that takes forever. Then all the teams that lost to the silver medal team competed in a third tournament to determine who won the bronze. No, I'm already... This is already an endurance sport. Yeah, Yeah, I mean... (laughs) By the third tournament, people are just going into the water and sinking to the bottom. Everyone went home already. (laughs) They're doing this in front of no one. They brought the horses in so they had something to sit on in the water. Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Ironically, France played played Belgium in the gold medal match. Belgium then won every match in the silver medal tournament. The U.S. lost to Belgium in the final for the silver, and then the U.S. won the tournament for the bronze. So if they had conducted a more standard knockout tournament or brackets or whatever... The results would have probably been the same. So this is maybe why it's the last time. They looked at it and they were like, hey, Guys, this is the same thing. Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, we could have we saved. We could all go home. We could have saved so much time. I mean, also, like, the, on the other hand, a lot of these times when they were technically doing the Bergball system, they only had, like, 
four teams in the tournament. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, true. When okay. you've got like four crews doing your skulls yeah. rowing or something, just do turn around and go back. It's fine. Like whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 When they when they finally start picking up steam, they're like, oh man, we can't do this many tournaments. Yeah, yeah is... we can't. We don't have time for this shit. Yeah, I, I do want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> have to end so they can start again in four years. If we're still going when the next round comes up, it's going to be a huge problem. This is the last time the Bergvall system would be used in the Olympics, so none, no more of that. None more. <laughs> none, none more. None more. And athletics. Once again, the big show with the athletics competition, otherwise known as track and field. There were 657 athletes from 40 nations competing in 25 events. No women. <laughs> you can't run that fast. No. Your uterus falls out. Yes, that's <laughs> fact. That is... Why also horses and I think early automobiles had restrictions on Yeah, they were worried yeah. about the women's uterus, like... Falling literally out. Because they were traveling so fast. They shouldn't be on the train. <laughs> Was it trains, too? <laughs> yeah, trains. <laughs> <laughs> the uterus is n- barely It's a delicate... It's just it's, like... It's, it's like, just kind of in there, but it's not hooked up to anything. You know, and it come could to think be of it, anywhere. <laughs> I don't think that was the argument. Bicycles, it was just like, they have too much freedom, they'll get ideas. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> well, they were like, that was the reason for everything, but they were like, just tell them their uterus will fall out. <laughs> they don't Which know. the idea of is horrifying to me, so I would not board a train. Um, if your uterus, which is designed to push out a baby. <laughs> it's fact. Uh, it can handle a train. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, had men had been on trains like trains are not particularly exhaustive they, things they, to be they, on the uterus would fall out it'll fall okay. out frank you and don't know barely in there yeah, i've like, been on trains you don't but you don't know it's just jostling around this uh-huh. little extra organ yeah i mean that's a, that that is actually a good point you've convinced me all right um anyway look we know the competition <laughs> <A woman> knows. <laughs> <laughs> the competition <Sorry. laughs> Don't, this is not a biology podcast. I mean, it kind of became <laughs> Unless one you for want it to there. be, hit us up on our Patreon. <laughs> Email us to tell us how wrong we are and review us with five stars to show us how, like a scale of one to five, how wrong we no, are. No, 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 no. Okay, no, here's the deal. We will only read your feedback if you give us five stars. So if you want to tell us what's yeah, happening, see, give us those five scam. stars and then we will literally read the words you write next to the five star <laughs> review. Okay. That's how it's done. I'll learn to read, and then I will read your review. <laughs> the competition, the, back to track and field. The competition took place from July 6th to the 13th. There were officially more track and field athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics than the total number of competitors in the 1896 Olympics. Joined back and looked, had 241 athletes from 14 nations. But they also had, like, Fugenslag log throwing event or something, right? Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of things. Uh, of these 40 participating nations, 10 were making their track and field Olympic debut, including some of the ones we've already talked about, like Ireland, Haiti, and Poland. Other Olympic first-timers included Ecuador, Latvia, the, the Philippines, and Bulgaria. The three others were countries that had already participated in the Olympics, just not track and field. Uh, the Americans, again, continued their dominance of the games in general, and track and field in particular, winning 32 of the 81 possible medals. They also won the most gold medals with 12. Finland was the next in the middle race with, medal race with 17, 10 of them gold. 
Then Great Britain with 11 medals total, three gold. Sweden won five medals. France, three, all bronzes, which did not make the home crowd happy. Uh, Italy, Switzerland, and South Africa all won two medals. And then all coming in with one, we have Australia, Argentina, Hungary, Estonia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and Norway. There were a lot of notable individual performances at these games. We're going to focus on those instead of going in depth about all the individual events. And we're going to be focusing a lot on the American team's performance because they were such a dominant force. It's like, I want to talk about everybody because that's one of my big problems with the Olympic coverage in the States is it's so It's hyper, terrible. It's very nationalistic, very focused on mm -hmm. the American team. But the problem when you're researching it uh, for me, at least, is I only I can only read English, <laughs> and a lot of the English sources focus primarily on America because they were so dominant for so long. I mean, still are. We've got a lot of people compared to many of the European countries that you know, we've got a bigger talent pool, right? Yeah, and I I mean, a lot of these a lot I don't know I don't know exact population breakdowns, but we've got more people than like. Sweden, right? Uh, yes. So, outside of skiing, we should be able to source <laughs> right. more athletes on average? Yeah, and I, I uh, yeah. And You're forgetting how the Swedes are built, which is like terrifying athletes. All of them. Every single one. There's Remember never they been... used to do two, two-handed javelin? Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> terrifying! For the, for the symmetry of the body. Yes. I think they actually threw with one hand and then the other hand, but I really like to think of them throwing both at once. Literal Vikings. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. Okay, they I'll... were the ones with the first blood to the ground roll. First blood oh. to the ground. <laughs> Keep for let, me, let me pick a different country as an example. Then. <laughs> yes. Luxembourg. Some less first yeah, blood Luxembourg to the ground Yeah, Luxembourg, what the hell? <laughs> Luxembourg, uh, who embarrassed Great Britain the other day, it was beautiful. Or England, oh, yeah. whatever, UK. I don't but know. But they still Johnson, come back to... That's who they... <laughs> they still won't come back to Eurovision. Oh. And they really should. They had their one gold medal for the marathon, and France stole it. They won't give it They've back. They won Eurovision, like, more than once, I think. <laughs> but it was all in the 50s. Okay. <laughs> can we do you Eurovision episodes in this podcast? Yeah, you yeah. can You can do the research, and we'll do the Eurovision episodes. We, it will happen. Don't, okay. don't yeah. say that. I will say that. Don't I mean, say totally, that. If me. I don't have to do the research, we could record do every day. Do not enable <laughs> me. Anyway, jumping. We're going to start with the jumping. There are four jumping events at the 1924 Olympics, pretty much the same as we have now. Long horse jump. No, <laughs> this is not the equestrian. That was last but month. they could jump over a horse. We did that already. The pommel horse? No. The horse <laughs> vaulting didn't happen. And we talked about horse, horse. jumping. <laughs> no horses. In track and field. That's what equestrian is for. Don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> There were four jumping events at the 1924 Olympics, pretty much the same as we have now. Long jump, triple jump, high jump, and pole vault. All running, no standing jumps. All of the noteworthy performances in jumping came from Americans. There was one event in which no Americans meddled, and that was the triple jump. For some reason, the Americans... The Italians are good at... <laughs> That's a Mario jump. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I was literally like, where is this going? Nowhere good. <laughs> Nowhere good. It actually wasn't as bad as I was worried about. <laughs> uh, it was know, still pretty bad. For yeah. some reason, yeah. like, okay. the Americans saw the triple jump as, like, a consolation prize for a long time. I don't know why. As in, like, if you have to use three jumps, it's not worth it? Like, yeah, like, I don't know. That's too many jumps. Anyways. We so, love economy here. In that event, Australian Nick Winter won gold. 
Perfectly normal name. Thank you, Australia, for giving us one. Uh, <laughs> Luis Brunetto of Argentina won silver, and Vilho Tulos of Finland won bronze, and his last name has two U's in a row in it, so I'm hoping I said that right. Uh, this was during a time in which, oh yeah, I say this, which the Americans did not care about the triple jump for reasons I can't explain. Remember in 1900 when Mayor <laughs> Prinstein and Alvin Kranzlein came to blows over the long jump and Prinstein feeling like Kranzlein tricked him out of competing for a gold medal, he probably would have won. Prinstein went on to win the gold in the triple jump, but this was just a consolation prize when the real triumph would have been the long jump. It is ungentlemanly to jump thrice. <laughs> I think it was also, it was called like hop, skip, and jump. Oh, yeah, I yeah, can definitely see doing. why that would cause some consternation in the American athletes. Skipping is not a sport. Hopping is barely acceptable as it is. <laughs> Skipping is right out. Yeah, yeah. The Americans did better in all of the other jumping events, winning at least the gold and silver in all three. Two bronzes went to other countries. Pierre Luden of France won bronze in the high jump, and Sever Hansen of Norway won bronze in the long jump. Americans swept pole vault. Harold Osborne, who won the gold in the high jump, also competed in the decathlon, so we'll talk more about him in a minute. There were two other gold medal performances that were noteworthy. First is Lee Barnes, who won gold in the pole vault. Barnes was from Salt Lake City and had only just graduated high school when he competed in the 1924 Olympics. This was before the invention of fiberglass poles, when the, the athletes were still using poles made of wood from ash trees and landing in shallow sand pits. So, yeah. <laughs> what are they landing now? Deep sand pits? No, they land on, like, foam pads. That seems way better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I had to choose, yeah. I would choose not to land on a pit. I would be not pole vault. <laughs> I think it would be fun. As, so the records <laughs> from this time are much, much lower than what athletes can do today. Because uh, they would, like, break their shins. I mean, they, they didn't diving have, into a pit. Yeah, yeah, and also they didn't have the same... Equipment like we've got really flexible poles Light, now to like launch you over yeah. the thing. Yeah, but the I feel like... ash wood would snap and impale you yeah. to death. Yeah. yeah, this seems like a lot more dangerous of a sport. Yeah, this was like serious. Uh, as such, Barnes won the gold with a jump of twelve feet eleven inches or three point nine six meters. I mean, I can't jump that high. Yeah, not even with not an even ash with pole. a stick. No. Uh, the four meter jump was another one of those limits that everybody that nobody had managed to break yet, but everybody was sure was possible. Like the just invent a taller stick. <laughs> oh my god! Invent fiberglass. Barnes. This is what's interesting about him. Went on to be Buster Keaton's stunt double. Sure. Buster Keaton had a stunt double for one stunt. <laughs> Like okay, because that there's, there's that one thing that he was like, I'm almost, not doing that. What stunt did Buster Keaton not perform? I'll tell you. Oh. I am horrified. Is, when did this become movie trivia a podcast? Buster Keaton is that guy who did the stunt where the house fell on Yeah, him? no, yeah. I know. And the stunt where he just this like, like, hung onto a clock for a while? Yeah. And when he was on front okay. of a moving train, <laughs> chucking lengths of wood at logs that were on the train tracks to knock them out of the just, way of like, the train. And just, drown himself in our river for a while and, like, roll down it with, like, a bear attacking him or something? But like, he wouldn't pole vault. This is the one stunt Buster Keaton didn't do. Uh, Barnes did a stunt where he pole vaulted through an open upper story window in the 1927 feature College. <laughs> 
So someone had to pole vault into a window, and Buster Keaton was like, I'll just hit the wall. I don't know how to pole vault. So this is how dangerous yeah. pole vaulting was back then. Yeah, right. That Buster and Keaton was like, nah, not that, though. Like, let yeah. me distract myself with this train. You pole vault. I don't we'll want to die. Even. Yeah. I, I will stand I'm not in, a fool. I will stand in front of the open window and have it fall on me. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. For sure. For sure I'll do that. That stunt, like... He did it, almost die. He did almost die, and a lot of the people he was working with walked off the set because they were like, you're going to die, and I don't want to help you kill yourself. Right. And he's like, it's just math. It's <laughs> like, just... That one they were off, though, weren't they? No. No. Because no. he lived. Yeah, I mean, he, he did live, but died. I thought it was... He, if he had I not... thought it was close. It, I think it was close. It, it like, was, nicked his hat. It, you yeah. see his hat move. Yeah. yeah, his hat was not supposed to move. So yeah. he was very close. <laughs> anyway, he did not do the pole vault. This guy did his and pole vaulting. That's how this guy died. Also. No, he, lived, he, lived. <laughs> he died of pole vaulting, yeah. as they all did. Americans swept pole vault in 1924 with Glenn Graham winning silver and James Booker winning bronze. Neither one of these guys were good enough to beat Buster Keaton's stunt double. You only need the one guy for the one stunt. It is his entire career. Yeah. He had one guy. That's incredible. Uh, the second noteworthy performance is William DeHart Hubbard who won the coveted long jump gold. Hubbard was the first African-American to win a gold medal in the Olympics. However, in the United States, his accomplishment was only covered by the black newspaper. I'm shocked. I'm not shocked. This was his only Olympic appearance, though he did have an accomplished career in collegiate sports and was posthumously inducted into the University of Michigan Hall of Honor in 1979. This was only the second class inducted into that Hall of Honor, and he had died in 1969, so this wasn't a long period of him being overlooked before his death on that count, at least. So, Throwing. There were four throwing events in the 1924 Olympics. Hammer throw, shot put, discus, and javelin. Again, pretty much what we have now. We're starting to, like, standardize a lot of things, right. with, especially with track and field. I'm just imagining, like, the four-armed character from Mortal Kombat throwing all four <laughs> things at once. Is he Swedish? I think he's... Outworld. Outworld. Arnie Boy Charles. (laughs) Arnie Boy Borg. (laughs) That's a way better Um, name. I'm going to (laughs) leave. Again, pretty much what we have now. Americans won at least one medal in all of the throwing events. Javelin was the only one in which they didn't win the gold. This, it was something of an accomplishment to win any kind of medal in javelin against the Scandinavians, as it was a national sport in both Finland and Sweden. I just, like, am terrified of the idea of, like, a bunch of people running around Scandinavia in the 20s, just the dual-wielding javelins. <laughs> okay, and I did not... That sounds great. It sounds terrifying. Just be one of those people. No! The only way to protect yourself from javelins is to have javelins of your own. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't think that's how that you works gotta at throw, all. You gotta throw your javelins and knock the javelins a, out of the air. What about a big net to catch the javelins? Javelins can go through nets. No, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it's work. How, how fine of a mess does your net have? Let's discuss this at length while we're just looking something up on the internet. I'm trying to find this guy's first name. Oh, I thought you were mm. going to find us pictures of the dual-wielding javelins. I don't know sleeps. what that looks like, and I don't want to... I'm going to uh, draw it. I don't want to ruin my. Yeah, check out image. our check out our Tumblr for art of. Please post Tumblr your javelin fan art to the Tumblr. No, I find Mastodon. Put your javelin fan art <laughs> oh, on our Mastodon I'm not account. Figuring out how Mastodon works. Because <laughs> I I didn't put this guy's first name anywhere, and I was like, wait, what? His name just he can't have just one name. He like could Madonna. just have one name. He did not. Okay. Okay. Um, Yoni Mira. Uh, 
his last name is M Y Y R A with an umlaut. Uh, was an uns- he was an unstoppable force in Javelin during the 20s, however you pronounce his name. Uh, going into the Olympics, he already held the Olympic record and the world record and was the defending gold medal champion from 1920. He didn't break either of those records in 1924, but he didn't need to. His second and final Olympic appearance ended with him winning another gold. Gunnar Lindstrom of Sweden won silver and American Eugene Oberst won bronze. What's also remarkable about Mira is that we still we do still have film footage of his performance in Paris and his form stands up to modern day athletes with the kind of training and equipment we have now he could easily still be a competitor um form and javelin is very important (laughs) I mean you're the expert I mean among us you're the one who's (laughs) professionally thrown javelins I was not a professional I threw competitively thrown javelins Competitive is even kind of a stretch. Throwing javelins. I have thrown a javelin <laughs> in my life. Um, my coach used to get real mad at me because he said I had perfect form, but I was throwing like half the distance of every other girl on my team, and he couldn't figure out where the, what the problem was. I, I don't know. I, I didn't go back to track after that season. I started debate. <laughs> and I lettered in debate. There you go. Uh, the American team fared better in hammer throw, winning both the gold and the silver. Matt McGrath, no relation to Mark. I already looked that up. We hate triple jumps, but we love throwing hammers. We do love throwing hammers. We're the other guys from Mario. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, we oh, have yeah. found the footage yeah. of Mira. He's definitely throwing a javelin. Terrifying. Yeah. That's even only one javelin. It's only one. We'll put the footage in here for the podcast. Yeah. Imagine him throwing two at once. No, thank you. Because that's what I'm doing right now. They're, they're yeah, running with great in, speed. Well, this is in slow motion, so... I know, but, like, still, look at... The form seems insane to me. Yeah, you... Like, he is hurling that with his entire body. That is terrifying. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Sorry, you said there was video footage, and I immediately was overcome with a need to see it. They, there's a lot of video footage from this. They did have, like, an official videographer... Terrifying. The smile of a murderer <laughs> of track and field. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a bunch of these on our, our Twitter um, because they are like all on YouTube. They're like public domain at this point. I think they have to be. Yeah. Um, Disney's like, not on these yet. They put very weird soundtracks on them. <laughs> yeah, we did watch that without any soundtracks. Yeah, so. the, sound, the sound kind of uh, is upsetting. To I me. hope it is smooth jazz. It, it's kind of like Tubular Bells style New Agey. It's very weird. I don't know. That's I, a choice that you could make. It, I think it's on the official IOC like YouTube channel. This is the music they choose to put on there on purpose. It should just be crawling. They're like, let's get, <laughs> let's get music that no one will sue us over. Like, no um, one would claim it because fair. no one wants anyone to know that they made this music. All right, anyway. Matt McGrath, like I said, uh, no relation to Mark. I already looked this up. Gold medalist and Olympic re- record holder from Stockholm, 1912. Uh, won the silver in his final Olympic appearance. He had competed in 1908, winning silver. Uh, 1912, winning gold, finished fifth in 1920 after knee surgery injury, and then silver in 1924, making for a very long-spanning Olympic career. Because um, that's 08 to 24. 16 years? I was going to say 26, and I'm like, no, that's not right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in 2002, the town of Nana in County Tipperary erected a statue in his it's N-E-N-A-G-H 
Nanach. That's what, yeah, Nanach. Uh, erected a statue in his honor as he was born in a village near there before emigrating to the United States. Malcolm Noakes of Great Britain won bronze in the hammer throw. Uh, didn't even say he won gold there. Uh, two Americans medaled in the discus as well, with Vilho Nietzsche uh, of Finland spoiling the sweep by winning silver. Thomas Lieb won bronze and Bud Hauser won gold. Bud Hauser was not finished though, because next was shot put. Today, you do not see multidiscipline throwers in track and field. Why? You just, you just throw it. <laughs> Even in <laughs> high school athletics, you're expected to specialize. Um, I think sometimes you'd have, like, shot put and discus. Uh, but you, the... I mean, the, that makes sense, right? You've got the one where you spin, and you've got the one where you do the twist. I'm doing a twist for the podcast. I'm doing a twist now. And then you got the one where you just kind of huck it. Yeah. So... Budhauser himself... You can feel the disdain just emanating. No, I'm just trying to, like... No, it's not disdain. I'm just trying to focus. <laughs> Budhauser himself developed throwing techniques that we still use. He's the guy who came up with the rotation-style throw of the biscuit. He invented the being the spinny boy. Yeah, he invented the spinny boy. He's also the guy who invented the staccato-style throw of the shot put, where you go boom, 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 and, like, throw it hmm. like that. He invented that, too. I don't know what they were doing before that. Just tucking it. Yeah, just overhand throw <laughs> a shot put. Um... He won golden discus with a final throw that was over four feet further than the silver medal winning throw. One of his throws in the qualifying round was even further than that, setting a new Olympic record of 151 feet, four inches. And this was also in a field, so they weren't hitting trees, so that helped. Uh, <laughs> get used to Americans winning a discus event, by the way, because they won eight of the next nine gold medals in discus, their streak wrapping up in 1968. The shot put competition was held five days after the discus final. It was a much tighter contest. Hauser was still considered a solid competitor, but there was more contenders he had to fight off. When it was all said and done, Hauser managed to literally inch ahead for the gold. His final throw was 14.995 meters, or 49 feet, 2 inches. Silver medalist and fellow American Glenn Hart... Hart Ramft? Uh, there's a lot of consonants had a final metal throw uh, a final throw of 14 meters of 14.895 meters or 48 feet 10 inches which is like three inch difference there and bronze medalist also american ralph hills had a final throw of 14.5 meters or 47 feet six inches so Hauser led the American team to, to a sweep of shot put medals. He also achieved a double gold in the Olympic throwing that is extremely rare today. You know, we have a lot of names that are a lot of consonants that are, are difficult, but one of these days we're going to find one that's all vowels, and no, it's going to be just as hard. We have, and they're all Finnish. <laughs> the Finns like multiple con multiples <laughs> of the same consonants in a row, which I find very disconcerting. Um... Like U's and Y's and A's. <laughs> and well, Y's are sometimes well. <laughs> when there's two in a row, what are they? Mm, typos? <laughs> Pentathlon and decathlon. 36 athletes from 22 nations competed in the decathlon in 1924. The 10 events were 100 meter sprint, long jump, shot put, high jump, 400 meter race, 110 meter hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and the 1,500-meter race. The events took place over two days of competition, during which the weather was remarkably hot and humid, making for miserable conditions while competing. Cool. 
Yes. <laughs> so or Japan's Olympics are coming up. I can't wait for those. Harold Osborne, who had already won gold in the high jump, won the gold in the decathlon. A bit more about Harold Osborne. When he was a teenager, he suffered an eye injury and lost most of his vision in that eye. One of the results of this was that it was that it permanently damaged his depth perception. This is Harry Osborne? Harold. Harry Osborne? Harold. This is not a comic book villain. It's not Spider-Man's nemesis? No. It's not the Green Goblin. Uh, The way he compensated for this with the high jump, a sport that depends on the athlete being able to tell where the bar is that they're supposed (laughs) to jump over, is by very carefully measuring the track and practicing the exact spot he needed to jump to clear the bar. So he would just memorize it before he did the jumps. That sounds way harder. Yeah, but he had plenty of time to practice this technique because growing up on a farm in Ohio, his father encouraged all four of his sons to be track athletes and built a track and hurdles around the farm so they could practice, which probably gave him the opportunity to perfect this method of jumping. Harold Osborne was the underdog. (laughs) Fellow American Emerson Norton led the pack through... Almost the entire... Norton Osborne. <laughs> I'll stop. Through almost the entire competition, mostly due to his massive performance in pole vaulting, with a jump of 3.8 meters, or 12 and a half feet, onto a sand pit. <laughs> uh, Emerson led until his throwing arm failed him during the javelin competition. Perhaps he landed on it in the sand pit. Wait, is that a real speculation? And that's just me. Okay. Like, oh, no. And then Osborne finished the 1,500-meter race 15 seconds ahead of Emerson. And now we get into the point totals. This is how they calculate these things. Osborne finished with a score of 7,710.775 points, a new world record that he held until 1938, and a title bestowed by sports journalists of the world's greatest athlete. And to this day, Osborne is the only Olympic athlete to win a gold in the decathlon and in an individual track and field event. That's a little surprising. It seems like at some point that would have happened again. Well, the thing about the decathlon is that usually they just do the decathlon. Oh, I see. Because uh, it, it's ten events. And it's... And you also have to be... A lot of scheduling conflicts. And yeah, and you have to be a lot more well-rounded. I think that's the so big you don't, difference. Yeah, you get your stat... Points and you can only put them in so so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But decathlon. You if you're look, multi-classing, you yeah. can't be the best at any one yeah. thing. Yeah, but like you know, Usain Bolt isn't a very good high jumper. I don't know that. So he's not. Gonna, <laughs> I mean, he's better than me, but he's not. <laughs> he's not better than somebody. Other Olympic like, high jumpers. Yeah, sure, exactly. Sure. And the decathlete is somebody who's good at all, good enough at all of these things. Um, that makes sense. So they they are more well rounded. Uh, Emerson Norton won silver, and Alexander Klumberg of Estonia won bronze in the decathlon. Klumberg also competed in 1920, 1932, and 1936 Olympics, but this was the only time he won a medal, so we're going to talk him about. So we're going to talk about him a bit. He was a badass. This was only the second time Estonia appeared in the Olympics because before that, it was part of the Russian Empire. There's also a gap from 1952 to 1988, because during that time they were part of the Soviet Union, which was not Seeing something. A pattern. <laughs> yeah, which was not something Estonia in general wanted to be. And Klumberg did his part to try to keep Estonia independent. He fought in the Estonian War for Independence from 1918 to 1919, 
which was fought to establish Estonia's borders after World War I. He was a physical education instructor for various Estonian and Polish military and police institutions throughout the 30s and 40s. He was arrested by the NKVD, the Soviet Interior Ministry. The precursors to the KGB, if I recall. Okay, I wasn't quite sure what they were. And sent to the Gulag in 1944, where he was incarcerated for 12 years. He was released uh, in 1956 and died two years later in 1958. In an ironic mirror to Osborne's double gold, we have Robert Legendre, who competed in the pentathlon. This was third and final pentathlon in the Olympics. From now on, there would only be the modern pentathlon. 30 athletes from 17 nations competed. The events that comprised the pentathlon were long jump, javelin throw, 200 meter, discus throw, and 1500 meter race. Eero Letonin of Finland won gold, Elmer Sonfe of Hungary won silver, and Robert Legendre of the U.S. won bronze. The reason we're talking about Robert Legendre is because of his incredible for- performance in the long jump. Legendre had, it's L-E-G-E-N-D-R-E. So like Legendre? Anyway. Legendre. Had developed a new method of jumping, which he called the hitch kick, which essentially looks like the jumper is running in midair. This method is very effective, and if you've ever watched an Olympic long jump competition, you've seen a lot of people doing this. Hmm. For some reason, Legendre didn't qualify for the long jump team, just the pentathlon. His best event was, unsurprisingly, the long jump. He shattered the existing world record with a jump of 7.765 meters, or 25 feet, 5.5 inches. I'm imagining that maybe the speculation entirely on my part but the specialized long jump they're they're like your technique is outrageous sir we cannot allow this i mean it just might have had a bad day oh that's fair yeah (laughs) i mean that if he invented a new technique that we're still using it seems like yeah should have been able to pull it out i mean i say for some reason i don't know what the reason was he might have missed the qualifiers he might have just had a bad competition he might have been injured i don't know um he did qualify for the pentathlon and, and sometimes they, like, do things with moving people around and different things, so I don't know. Maybe the king moved the event three hours earlier on a whim, <laughs> and he had had a big lunch that day. Well, no, he wasn't on the Olympic long jumping oh, team at all, so, or for America. Um, the previous world record was 7.69 meters, and the Olympic gold medalist in long jump at the 1924 Olympics won with a jump of 7.12 meters, uh, which is more than half a meter shorter than his jump during the pentathlon. So while he set the new world record and was the best long jumper of the day and the Olympics, the best medal he won was a bronze in the pentathlon. I mean, that's got to sting a little bit, but you do get the world record. So there's Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, but it would be nice to have the gold medal for your world Can record. Can you use your bronze medal just beat the dude and take <laughs> No, that's not how it works. Unless it's boxing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can put your previous Olympic medals on the edges of your gloves and just punch them with the medals. It would be pretty badass if you could. You just have bands of like m- different medals around yeah. your gloves. Running, walking, and steeplechase. Hold on. No, go ahead. <laughs> okay. I feel continue. like I'm getting revved up here. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought we were done with walking as a quote-unquote sport. Walking? I think they still do. <laughs> okay. We didn't really get into this earlier, but the French anger over the Americans' arrogant nationalism was not entirely unfounded. 
although it was probably fueled, at least in part, by the undeniable fact that France's empire was waning in the wake of World War I. While the U.S. may have been isolationist and reluctant to get involved in international conflicts before the war, after the war they were absolutely angling for a greater role in the world stage, and one of the places this was expressed was in sports. For example, this description of the American sprinting team, written by sports journalist Grantland Rice. This is this one, the greatest sprinting squad. The greatest sprinting squad ever gathered under one flag since Greece decided that the, that the athletic games were the foundation of national fiber. So, the there's, there's another one? Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, yes. The modern Jasons who sailed for the golden fleece of Olympic flame. So... <laughs> I appreciate that there's just an assumed familiarity with Jason and the Argonauts in, like, anyone reading a sports newspaper. Yeah, and that was uh, by uh, Grantland Rice. I don't know what he published that in, though. Uh, so. Walking. There was only one walking race in the 1924 Olympics. Tried to contain your disappointment, Frank. Uh, I am extremely disappointed that we still allow walking races in the Olympics. <laughs> it Don't was get me wrong. The 10K. This was the last time the 10K would be held at the Olympics until its glorious return 24 years later in 1948. Returning, <laughs> returning Olympic speed walking champion, the Italian flag bearer Ugo Frigerio won the gold. I think that was the guy who, like... The guy that cheered him, had yeah. everyone cheer him as he walked past? Yeah. I riled up the crowd when he went by? Yeah. So it created distractions so he could cheat at walking? <laughs> which is the only possible explanation? Gordon Goodwin of Great of Great Britain won silver, and Cecil McMaster of South Africa won bronze. That's all I got while I'm walking. <sighs> okay, we're through that nightmare. Hurdles. There were two events in hurdles at the 1924 Games, the 110 meter and the 400 meter. There were eight heats leading up to the final race in the 110-meter hurdles, and comfortable favorite Sidney Atkinson of South Africa clocked the fastest time out of all of them. South Africa had a strong team for hurdles at the time, as Earl Thomas of South Africa set Olympic and world records in his gold medal performance in 1920 at Antwerp. Atkinson faced off against six other runners in the final, Americans Daniel Kinsey, Carl Anderson, and George Guthrie, and Swedish runners Sten... Petterson and Carl Axel Christiansen. Carl Axel is his first name is hyphenated. Carl Axel. Yes. Nice. Kinsey was an accomplished athlete when he got to the Olympics, and it was expected he would give Atkinson a good challenge, and he did. Atkinson had an early lead and held on to it for most of the race. Kinsey close on his heels. But in the final hurdle, Atkinson clipped the upright and it slowed him down just enough for Kinsey to take the lead. I want to point out, if I may, I think that this is before we'd invented the hurdles that actually collapse when you hit them. Yeah, they were still using the... Like, the T-square. Yeah. Like, if you clip this, you die. It's it's like an inverted... It's upside-down T, and it's made of wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to break a shin, hurdling was a great sport <laughs> in the 20s. Um, let me see. Uh... Atkinson clipped the upright and slowed him down just enough for Kinsey to take the lead. He won with a time of 15.0 seconds, a time Atkinson matched 
but there was enough of a gap visible between them that it was determined Kinsey had won. Sten Pettersson of Sweden won the bronze with a time of 15.4 seconds. So that was a very close. Yeah, it's like you have, they only went to the tenth of a second in yeah. the official record? Okay. Yeah. Uh, American Frank Loomis held the world and Olympic record for the 400-meter hurdles from his performance in 1920. He did not return to defend his title, but the American team was a dominant force in Olympic hurdling regardless, which is noteworthy as it was not a common event in American collegiate sports. They only had it in competition during Olympic years. At the time, if a hurdler knocked a hurdle during their race, their time didn't count toward the world records. If these times had been allowed, the record would have been broken by Ivan Riley and then Morgan Taylor. Both Riley and Taylor competed in the 400 meters of the Olympics and made it to the finals along with four others. Fellow American Charles Brookins, Fred Blackett of Great Britain, Eric Weilin of Finland, and Jeanne André of France. Ironically, despite Riley's better posted time, it was Brookins who was considered one of the two best hurdlers in the games along with Taylor. Brookins' performance did not live up to expectations. He and Blackett were both disqualified in the final due to knocking over hurdles and crossing out of their lanes. This cost Brookins the silver medal. The final standings were Taylor winning the gold, Eric Weiland winning silver, and Ivan Riley winning bronze. Taylor also broke the world record, but didn't count because he knocked over a hurdle in the process. So I think he should get, like, an extra star next to his world record. Yeah, you hit one of those things and still managed to break the record. It's like, well, yeah. you just limped to the finish line, like, <laughs> and you're still the best? Come on. Steeplechase. There was only one steeplechase event in 1924, the 3,000-meter race. I mean, other than the equestrian one. Uh, Twenty runners entered, and the field was narrowed to nine for the finals. When it was all said and done, Veil Rotola of Finland had won the gold medal and set a new Olympic record. Fellow Finn Elias Katz won silver, and French runner Paul Bontemps won bronze. We're going to talk about Rotola for a moment because his performance at these Olympics was phenomenal. He would return in 19... Where is it? Was... He would return in 1928 to rack up a few more medals, but his strongest performance was in 1924. Rotola was one of his father's 20 children... His father had six children with his first wife and 14 with the second, the youngest of which being Violet. That would take at least 10 years of constant childbirth, right? Yeah, although you... Or they could be triplets or twins or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. That's still a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, Vila emigrated to the United States in 1913 to work as a carpenter and didn't start training as a runner until 1919 when he was 23. He would, late, he would say later that this late start was a disadvantage, as his more famous teammate, Pavo Nurmi, had started training in his teens. We'll have a lot to say about Pavo Nurmi. He was an interesting guy. Hannes Kolomainen had tried to convince him to try out for the Finnish team in 1920, but he demurred, saying he wasn't ready. He'd also just gotten married, and probably was more interested in paying attention to his wife at the time. He started training in earnest in 1921, and in 1922, he won his first AAU gold medals and came in second in the Boston Marathon. He set his first official world record during the Olympic qualifying events in Finland in the 10,000-meter race. We'll list out the exact distances he meddled in later when we get to the rest of the races, but it was all said and done, Rotola still holds the record for winning the most track and field medals in one Olympics and has the second most Olympic medals of any individual track and field athlete. Wow. But still. <laughs> the 
the marathon was still the big show of the big show at the Olympics, despite disasters in early Olympics that we've already talked about in depth. Wild dog, strychnine, murder. (laughs) It wasn't murder. (laughs) The guy died of heat stroke. (laughs) And uh, just losing athletes along the way. That happened as well. (laughs) Uh, This was the second time that the distance of 26 miles, 385 yards was used. The distance set in London in 1908 and going forward would be the official standard Olympic marathon distance. 58 runners from 20 nations competed. There was no qualifying rounds as that would be inhumane. (laughs) Yes, please run this second marathon. Thank you. Hannes Kolomainen of Finland still held the re- world and Olympic record from his performance in Antwerp, but had retired after 1920 and was not competing in Paris. It was a brutally hot day in Paris when the marathon was held. Officials delayed the starting time in the hopes that it would cool down, but the difference was... Is that minimal. how the day works? Not generally. <laughs> However, unlike in St. Louis, there were at least multiple water stations set up along the route where runners could get a drink, wet their faces, and get damp rags to drape over their necks and heads. It wasn't the level of sports medicine we have today, but it was better than nothing, or deliberate maliciousness. <laughs> yeah, none of those water stations were poisoned. Yes. <laughs> Oscar Stenrus of Finland hadn't won a marathon in 15 years. He hadn't won a medal in 12, not since winning a silver in team cross-country and a bronze in the 10,000-meter race in Stockholm. When he appeared in the Games in Paris, he was 35 years old. He was not, to put it mildly, a favorite. Mm-hmm. Nope. By the time he entered the Olympic Stadium for the final lap, he had a lead of about six minutes. Wow. He tipped his cap to the cheering crowd and finished the race with a time of 2 hours, 41.22 minutes, or just under 6 minutes ahead of silver medalist Romeo Bertini of Italy. Clarence DeMar of the U.S. took bronze in the marathon. Also, to illustrate just how much of a detriment the temperature was on performance, the guy who placed 7th, Algerian-born French athlete Ahmed Bouhera el Oifi. <laughs> There's a lot of vowels in that name. Will return in 1928 and win the marathon with a time that is nine minutes faster than Stenrus's gold medal time. Wow. So this, the 35-year-old, he's yeah. like, I'm not the best, but I'm inexplicably resilient to the heat compared to you all. So <laughs> I will be Finnish, less uh, Yeah, this affected. Finnish guy. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it's so hot in Finland. I mean... No, it does not get hot soon. in Finland. <laughs> yeah, soon. Uh but it's like, you know, you know how, like, uh, horse, in horse racing, they'd say there's some ra- horses who run better in the mud. Uh, is that true? Yeah, they, I mean, hmm. supposedly. Okay. I've only heard this from people who bet on horse races, so, mm. you know, grain of salt. Grain of salt. Maybe, I, I guess there's runners who are just better in the heat. <laughs> I mean, I can certainly imagine being less affected by heat than average, and then you yeah. get an advantage when it's would, brutally hot. But, I mean, you would think the Algerian guy would be a little more accustomed to that. I mean, I mean, now that I've got... thought about it, now that you've said it out loud, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but apparently this Finnish guy... Anyway, running. Th- this is our last section, but it's long because there's a lot of big stories in this. There is, in these Olympics, one of the most famous sports stories of all time. One that was an Oscar-winning... F- that has an Oscar-winning film depicting it, and a theme song that you've definitely heard in your life so many times as part of the cultural lexicon. Cool Runnings? Not Cool Runnings. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, first, we're going to cover another noteworthy performance that you probably that you probably haven't heard about unless you're Finnish. 
you are finished, you've probably heard of this guy. There were four types of foot races in the 1924 games. Sprint, middle distance, long distance, and relay. The Americans did well in the sprints. The British did better in the middle distances, and the Finns dominated the long distance races. So while the Americans had a respectable performance, they weren't nearly the dominating force they were in the other events. Starting with the long distance races, we're going to talk about Pavo Nurmi, the quote, quote, the flying Finn. Okay. Nurmi was one of the most influential middle and long distance athletes of the modern era. He developed techniques that are the basis of pretty much all premier distance running training programs and racked up a massive amount of medals in the process. He competed in Antwerp in 1920 and Amsterdam in 1928 along with his Paris appearance, but this was the peak of his career, so we're going to go in depth about him now. Nurmi was another one of those working class Finnish athletes who were part of the changing face of amateur athletes in the early part of the 20th century. The oldest of five children, his father was a carpenter and his mom was a Five, what a normal number of children. Yeah, right? Uh, Not 20. Not 20. Uh, uh, And his mom was a homemaker. I mean, I can't imagine that all of his siblings survived, but they don't mention that. Uh, that's That's a good point as well. I hadn't thought of that. But they don't, they don't talk about that. They just say that his, one, his dad's first wife had six kids and, his, and the second wife had 14. So I don't know. It's possible all 20 survived. Um, uh, growing up, his biggest inspiration for running was English runner Alfred Shrub, who won a lot of international cross-country championships, but we've never talked about him because he never competed in the Olympics. Uh, Nermi and his friends would regularly walk or run four miles each way to go swim, sometimes twice a day. But dreams of international competition went by the wayside when he dropped out of school to work. I wonder how much swimming you do when you don't have to walk four miles back. I don't know. I mean, that is a very good question. I feel like it would be in your head. I would do very little. Yeah. (laughs) I'd just be like, I'm already tired. Yeah. I'm just going to take a nap. Like, I'm three miles to the swimming home. Like, actually, I'm good. You know what? I think I'm just going to live here now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going back. I'm going to build myself a little hut and go fishing and live here forever because I don't want to. Starting a new life. I'm not going to run four miles back. And tell mom I love her. Because <laughs> I don't have a phone. It's like 1904 in Finland. Uh, when Hannes Kolomainen started winning medals, his in, uh, Nermi's interest was rekindled, and at 15 he started training again. He would cross-country run during the summer and cross-country ski during the winter. Very little is known of his training program during this time because he was famously tight-lipped on how he did anything while he was still competing. If anybody tried to team up for training, he would outpace them until they were exhausted and go do his own thing once he was alone again. He's got some kind of, like, anime training weights, like, time chamber thing going on. He was kind of an asshole. Well. (laughs) But he was really interesting. Um... Nermi was generally regarded by anybody who spent time in his company as, quote, taciturn, stony-faced, stubborn, and was described by French journalist Gabrielle Hanot as ever more serious, reserved, concentrating, pessimistic, fanatic. There was such coldness in him, and his self-control was so great that never for a moment does he show his feelings. So many different synonyms for kind of an asshole. Yeah. He hated publicity actively rejected fame, saying at his 75th birthday that, quote, worldly fame and reputation are worth less than a rotten lingonberry. Ooh, burn. (laughs) Even among Finnish runners and athletes, quote, he was never quite real. 
He was enigmatic, sphinx-like, a god in a cloud. It was like he was all the time playing a role in a drama, according to Ron Clark, Australian middle and long-distance runner. Like, that's what his teammates said about him. And the other athletes are like, so what's, like, this guy like? And they're like, I don't... They're like, hey, what's, what's, what's your friend? He's kind of an asshole. He's not we like... only see him once in the blue moons when he <laughs> graces us with his presence to win a medal on our behalf. And he's... then he is off again to the fields. He's not our friend. Yeah. <laughs> he's on the team, but he's not our friend. Despite his cold public image, he was a little more interested in his fellow Finnish runners, offering them words of advice, like telling his rival, Otto Peltzer, to ignore whatever anybody else is doing. Quote, conquering yourself is the greatest challenge of an athlete. He was also a big proponent of mind over matter, saying, quote, mind is everything, muscle, pieces of rubber, all that I am, I am because of my mind. But it's also important to note that he was self-identified as a neurasthenic, which is one of the early terms for sort forms of depression that we now divide up into separate sorts. Uh, whatever he was struggling with, it's clear that he suffered from some form of depression and was aware of it. He kept a strict diet along with his strict training regime, and it appears to be that this was one of the ways he coped with the illness in a time when therapy was still in the infancy and medication for depression just didn't exist. So... No, it took a dark turn. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, at least he's got something yeah. as a productive routine, not, like, actively self-harmful going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's doing the best he could with the tools at the time. He was the first athlete to train with a stopwatch. This Wait, a... we'd had those for a while we by had. now, right? He was the first one to be like, hey, if I time myself. Madness. <laughs> Meticulously recording... Uh, his lap and split times and developing his pace to keep up the greatest speed over the greatest length. This paid off in spades in 1924. He won five medals, all golds, adding them to the four medals he had from 1920, which were three gold and one silver. But to really appreciate what incredible feat this was, we need to look a little closer at the conditions of the individual races and what the competition schedule was. Oh, let me guess. Extremely hot and incredibly humid. It was a heat wave in Paris yeah. during like, all of the track and field. We've touched on this earlier, but during the 1924 Olympics, like I said, Paris experienced a significant heat wave, which peaked during the cross-country race, which was the last race Nermi ran on a grueling competition schedule. He ran in the semifinals for the 5,000 meter on July 8th, then the semifinals for the 1,500 meter on July 9th, and then the final for the 1,500 meter and the 5,000 meter races on July 10th, with only about an hour in between, and then... The 3,000 meter team race on July 11th, and then the cross country race on July 12th during the hottest day of the heat wave with temperatures peaking at about 45 degrees Celsius or 113 degrees Fahrenheit. That's too many. That's too many. <laughs> also, where. I can't even jog outside in like any month, let alone when it's During the 1,500 meter final, Nermi's goal was to win without overly exerting himself. He took the lead at 200 meters and kept it the rest of the race. <laughs> but not exerting himself too much. Well, he got to save up energy to crush somebody in the next race, right? Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, th when was the 1500 meter final that was like halfway through? Yeah, he had to, yeah, because the 1500 meter race was the same day as the 5000 meter. 
So he had to save up his energy for the race that was an hour after this Yeah, one. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, he took the lead at 200 meters and kept it for the rest of the race. American Ray Watson was the only one who even came close, and he gave up after realizing that Nermi was on a different plane. <laughs> Nermi even eased up the pace in the final 300 meters, but still beat silver medalist Willie Scherer of Switzerland by 2.6 seconds. Bronze medalist... H.B. Stallard of Great Britain won bronze 0.6 seconds behind Scherer. Nermi's gold medal winning time in the 1500 meters was only a second slower than his own world record and was a new Olympic record. <laughs> but he didn't exert himself too much. There was a slight delay to the start of the 5000 meter race, but it didn't really make much of a difference for Nermi and nobody could keep up with him anyway. <laughs> like he was delayed specifically? No, no the, the start of the race was delayed slightly. Uh -huh. Uh, he did have an actual challenger in his own teammate, Vila Rotola, who we talked about earlier, who already had two gold medals of his own from these games, the 3,000-meter steeplechase and the 10,000-meter race. Nermi had a chip on his shoulder about Rotola as the Finnish team coaches had decided to split the two of them up and not let Nermi run in the 10,000-meter, making this their first meter. Another Finn competing for Sweden, Edvin Weidvide, uh, took the gold early took the lead early on but by 2000 meter had be, meters had begun to fade that's when Nermi and Rotola began the real duel at one point Nermi had a lead of about 7 yards but Rotola managed to catch him in the final lap in that final lap Rotola made a move to the outside to overtake Nermi but Nermi just sprinted faster and won by a yard my ultimate technique running faster than you <laughs> at the end of a race his final time was 14 minutes, 31.2 seconds, another gold medal, and another new Olympic record in just over an hour. The next day, Nermi ran in a semifinal for it's the- It's not done. No, this is halfway through. No. He ran in a semifinal for the 3,000 meter team race. He beat Rotola in that too. The next medal race was the individual cross country race final, which took place on the next day, July 12th. As I mentioned, this was the hottest day of the heat wave. The weather took its toll on the competitors, along with terrible racing conditions along the track. The course followed along the banks of the Seine. There was no shade, dense weeds, and it passed uncomfortably close to an energy plant, which was, at the time, there were no environmental regulations on coal-burning plants. So you have the black lung now. Yeah. Good thing you're not breathing heavily while running. Oh, wait. And the... Uh, the plant in Paris was a good example of why we have regulations now. Uh, if the searing heat didn't get the runners, the poisonous fumes did. Of the 38 runners who started the 10,650 meter course, only 15 finished. Eight of those who finished had to be taken on stretchers to hospital. Entire teams did not finish. None of the Swedes and none of the British runners managed to finish the race. In fact, the three nations that medaled were the only ones who managed to get three runners across the finish <laughs> line, which is what they needed as only the first three runners from each country's time would count to the finish. So if you've got two, then you add on, like, it max to Yeah, I'm not sure. Time. Finnish teammate Heike Limatainen staggered across the finish line semi-conscious. It took him two minutes to run the last 30 meters, giving him an ultimate placement of 8th. And that's how the Finnish team won the gold, as Nermi and Rotola had finished 1st and 2nd. <laughs> the day after this disaster, most of the athletes who had run the race were recovering, many still hospitalized. 
Nermi and Rotola had another race to run, the 3,000-meter team race. I think I might have mixed two of these up in that one. Oh, that was the semifinal team race. Okay. Um... I mean, eventually, they're going to be the only runners left alive. Yeah. Uh, they're going to start sweeping medals. Nermi took the lead in the first kilometer, and Rotola never caught him. Nermi came in first, 8.6 seconds ahead of Rotola, and the Finns won the gold, which brought Rotola, brought Nermi's grand total to five gold medals, and Rotola's to four golds and two silvers. The French press were utterly astonished, along with everybody else. Nermi was described by Miroir des Sports as Pavo Nermi goes beyond the limits of humanity. The Guardian was even... He has surpassed his humanity! The Guardian was even more effusive. We have a pretty big excerpt here. Sarah, do you want to read that block quote on that page? He reduced the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris to a farce, a series of exhibition races. In race after race, Nermi would reel off lap after lap never varying his pace or stride by a fraction, drawing inexorably further and further away. He would win by the length uh, of a street, and a blue and white flag would go fluttering up the flagstaff, and everybody would stand to attention while the band played the Finnish national anthem. Everybody, that is to say, except Nermi, for Nermi would not be there. He did not stop when he had broken the tape. He ran straight to where his clothes were lying on the grass, picked them up, and ran on into the dressing room. And that was the last we saw of him until the next massacre was due to take place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nermi was still rankled by the fact that he had not been able to compete in the 10,000 meter race and later would go on to set a new world record in the 10,000 meter that would stand for 13 years. And he will be back for the 1928 games for his final Olympic competition. The last two runners we're going to talk about are Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell, two British track athletes whose story was the basis for the 1981 Oscar award-winning film Chariots of Fire. That movie's not about literal chariots? No. I have never seen it. It's about guys running. Chariots of Fire was nominated for... Take it off my watch list. Seven Academy Awards and won four Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture. It was nominated for ten BAFTAs, but only won three of these. You've heard the theme song. It's used constantly, often in spoofs. I don't know how much of longevity this movie has had, and it definitely took liberties with the story. Uh, that's that... That's the theme song for this. Yeah. Um, we'll put it in. We'll put it in the theme. We'll put it in, yeah, we'll just. I might actually do that. Fix it in post. Maybe. So here's what happened in the 1924 Olympics with Abrahams and Liddell. They were both outsiders. Even with the massive social upheaval wrought by the First World War, amateur athletics in Great Britain, particularly sports that weren't combat-based, i.e., boxing, there was were still very much the realm of gentlemen. Of the two, Abrahams fit that mold a little better. Abraham's father was a Jewish-Polish immigrant, and his mother was Welsh-Jewish. He was born in Bedford in 1899, the youngest of three sons, and the only one not to be eventually knighted. His eldest brother, Sir Adolf Abrahams, is the founder of British sports medicine. His middle brother, Sir Sidney Abrahams, was also an Olympic athlete and competed in the long jump. Since Harold was never knighted, He did manage some achievements his brothers did not, in addition to the extremely famous movie based on those achievements. For all that he accomplished, Abrahams always felt on the outside of the rest of his Cambridge teammates and classmates. 
He's not. He's not even knighted. Anti-Semitism was a common thing in Western Europe at the time, and while Abrahams was not subject to the sort of hardship and abuse that would happen on the continent in a few short years, it still had an impact. One of his few friends on the team was also his rival in the 100-meter event, Eric Liddell. Liddell was even more of an oddball. He was born in 1902 to Scottish missionaries in Tianjin, China, which was the King Empire at the time. He lived there with them until the age of six when he and his brother were sent to Eltham, Eltham College, a boarding school in South London for the children of missionaries abroad. For the next 12 years, he saw his parents, sister, and little brother two or three times when they came home on furlough and the family spent time together in Edinburgh. That's not per year. No, yeah. That's At full stop, I caught, I noticed that. It's not great. Two or three times in 16 years. To England to China in 1920 is not a trip that, that wasn't you even make. That, that 1910, 1900. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, after Elton, he went to the University of Edinburgh, where he joined the track team and became known as, quote, the fastest man in Scotland. He was also remarkably hum humble, no matter his athletic achievements, and headmaster of Elton describing him as, quote, entirely without vanity. In addition to running track, he also joined the rugby team. So. It's like the more violent football? Yes. I'm just queuing this up for when we get there. Um, he qualified for the 100-meter race in the 1924 games, but withdrew when he found out that the finals would be run on a Sunday. He encouraged his friend, Abrahams, to focus on the event and train with a professional coach. Abrahams didn't have much faith in his ability to take on the Americans, and with good reason. The heavy favorites were returning Olympic champion Charlie, quote, California Flash, Paddock, who had won gold in the 100 meter in 1920, as well as the 4 by 100 meter relay, and his teammate Jackson, quote, the New York Thunderbolt Schultz. Please tell me that they're not from those states. Like, is California Flash from, like, Iowa? And no, he's New from York California. Bolt, New York Bolts from, like, Louisiana no, or something? No! <laughs> Ever since the dawn of the Olympics, the modern Olympics, the, Olymp the Americans had been an overwhelming force in track and field. There was no reason to think that it would change. It didn't in the 200 meter. Schultz took gold and Paddock took silver with Liddell snagging the bronze. Of the six athletes who ran in the final, Liddell and Abrahams were the sole Brits. The rest were all Americans and Abrahams came in dead last. Abrahams did better in the 100 meters. He set an Olympic record of 10.6 seconds in the quarterfinals. And then, in semifinals, thought there was a false start. Started late when everybody was a yard ahead of him and matched his new record finishing in 10.6 seconds again. He started at the right time in the final and for, <laughs> and for a third time matched his new record of 10.6 seconds, winning the gold ahead of the American power duo. Schultz won silver and Arthur Porritt of New Zealand snuck in and got the bronze. Nice. Charlie Paddock came in fifth out of six competitors. <gasps> so much for the California flash. Liddell's strongest event was the 100 meters, but chose not to compete in that distance because the final conflicted with the Sabbath. Unlike earlier Sabbatarians, like the Americans at the 1900 Parisian Games, he didn't try to argue the officials into changing the event schedule to suit his needs. He just changed what event he competed in. In Chariots of Fire, this is portrayed as all happening at the Games, when in reality the schedule was announced and Liddell adjusted accordingly months earlier. <laughs> Like a per like a, well not not a professional because you can't be a professional yeah. and be but like yes like a like a thing that would happen at a well organized sporting event <laughs> which 
you know, in the past, the Olympics weren't. Oh, sure. If this <laughs> like, were if this were a U.S. hosted event, it would have been day of, and someone would have gotten shanked, and then there would have been like a dog on strychnine. Like who even knows? What going on? Most of those details I didn't even make up. <laughs> I don't know if the dogs were doing strychnine. Mm. We gotta save that for the runners. The, that's, that was that's our the, expensive the, treatment. The dogs and the strychnine were like the same race. Yeah, I know, but the dogs. There was also a car right in front of you. <laughs> As if you were just sucking out Give me those strychnine pieces. <laughs> his performance in the 400 meter was something to see. His form, by all accounts, was hideous. Yeah, there's another, there's video footage of him running too. Described as, quote, with his head tilted skywards, his hands clawing through the air and his feet pattering at tremendous speeds. He didn't seem to adjust his pace to account for the fact that he was running a race that was four times longer than his preferred distance. That probably doesn't matter too much in running four times the amount of running is like the same amount of mm. it's still a lot of running yeah once you hit a lot of running it's just all it's all the same it's an equivalence class of running now the 400 meters is considered a sprint a particularly brutal sprint but a sprint all, all the same at the time it was considered a middle distance race making liddell's blistering pace all the more noteworthy and baffling he sprinted all the way through each heat, and the prevailing opinion was that, at some point, his stamina would just give out. He couldn't keep running at these speeds, and when he faded, the Americans or his teammate Guy Butler would overtake him. Is this race now considered a sprint because this dude just sprinted it one time? Um, I, I mean, he was probably part of it, because okay. he did actually end up doing really well. His form, his pace, and his unconventional religious practices all made him something of a laughing stock. But before the final for the 400 meter, one of the Americans handed him a slip of paper with the Bible verse, quote, Those who honor me, I will honor. So there are at least some who admired him for sticking to his convictions, even if his form was silly. Uh, we don't know how many 400 meter heats Liddell could have run at his breakneck speed, but he had enough in the tank to keep it up all the way through the finals. Nobody could keep up with him. He won the gold and set a new Olympic record that would last for 12 years. It was the last Olympic appearance for both. Abrahams broke his leg in 1921 in a long jump competition. Liddell returned to China to continue his missionary work and died of a brain tumor in 1945 in a Japanese internment camp. Mm. Rough way to go. One notable last for these games, it was the final time that Pierre de Coubertin would personally be leading the IOC for an Olympic Games. He continued to attend and be involved in some way, but in a much more figurehead position and not personally being in charge of any everything. And finally, there are two stories to talk about before we end things for the 1924 Olympiad. The first is a notable omission, and the other is a related event that later evolved into its own movement. We talked quite a bit about Germany's ongoing ban from the Games. Another nation that had yet to make their Olympic debut after the political upheaval wrought by World War I was the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh, I forgot they were around at this point, but yeah. They haven't been in the Olympics yet. Uh, while the Soviet Union would later become a major force in the Olympic movement, during the early years following the revolution, it was not at all something that concerned them. One of the reasons for this was the Bolshevik leaders' emphasis on intellectual pursuits. They saw sports, in general, as a brutish waste of time. Yeah, but that didn't really work out. 
That didn't last. No, this, that like, was held... real bad. And I, okay, we're not an, we're not a Soviet intellectual purds podcast either. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's like the same level as the competition is on German stance that the Germans took well, for a hot minute oh, in like nineteen oh four. One of Lenin's colleagues, a man named Nikolai Valentinov, described this attitude this way: We have a. Uh, Yeah, this excerpt, the top one. There's like two excerpts on that page. Uh, uh, Nikolai Valentinov. Yes. There were things in my room that made him turn away with unconcealed disgust. Heavy dumbbells and weights. He was unable to understand how a man calling himself a social democrat or simply an intelligent man could take any interest in athletics in such rough circus business as weightlifting. I think uh, in modern times, he would refer to it as sports ball. <laughs> I think he would say sports ball. Um, what's the... Yeah, is there an equivalent of like a jock yelling, nerd? Like, what's the other What's the other direction? Um, I don't care about the Super Bowl. It's all just sports ball, put it in the net. I mean, those are all just... I mean, I mean that's is that the, not how sports ball works? All right. So, but... While the more intellectually inclined Bolsheviks were eventually came around to, or at least whoever was in charge of the Soviet Union came around to agree that sports are fun, there was still a resistance to accepting the way that sporting events were conducted in the West. You know, it's probably like a tribalism thing. The whole striving to be the best and set new individual records thing was seen as antithetical to true communism. Which, fair enough. Kind of isn't in keeping with the philosophy. I guess. Furthermore, there were strong and true criticisms of how capitalism exploits athletes. Let me find Ye- that one. Well, and yes. Got us there. So we're not yeah. an NCAA podcast either. No. When you're talking a- about the NCAA, has never done anything wrong. There's a quote there that uh, kind of got me right <laughs> yeah. in the gut. Uh, top of here. Okay. People who go in for professional sport, their bodies become merchandise. They are bought and sold and cast aside when they are useless. Yep. Hmm. That's NFL. Uh, um, Don't worry, the XFL will give them some competition to fix that. Oh. However, there were other schools of thought. The German Social Democrats, in particular, were very interested in sports as a method of unifying the people to strive toward a common goal. As Fritz, uh, but competition is un-Germanic. They're not. No, you're unifying everybody to work together. Mm. As Fritz Wildung explained, and then we have this on 1932. This is the other. There was a lot of. This is kind of edging into outside the purview of this podcast territory, but there was a lot of kind of philosophical back and forth between the German Social Democrats and, like, the Bolshevik Soviets at this point in time. Yeah, the counterpoint to the previous quote, I suppose. The sport of the proletariat must be placed in the service of socialism. It should become a powerful lover of the new culture, whose bearer will be the proletariat. Sport is a chain breaker, a liberator from physical and spiritual slavery. So... That's another school of thought. I mean, I have some qualms with both of those quotes, but, I mean, one of them does let you play sports, which is, like, a little better. (laughs) So. There we go. Uh, And then we did that. 
Socialist workers' athletic clubs began to spring up all over Europe, starting in the East and eventually making their way all the way to Great Britain, even before World War I. The Socialist Workers Sports International was the largest organization with the strongest showing in Germany, and by 1930 had membership of over 4 million people. There was the other sports movement in Germany during the time that they banned during... This was the other sports movement in Germany during the time they were banned from the Olympics. We talked about, like, the nationalistic one that the uh. Nazis liked before. I, the, in 1925, they hosted the first Workers' Olympics in Frankfurt. They were granted funding from the government and the liberal Jewish mayor, Ludwig Landmann. It was an enormous success. 150,000 spectators attended the opening ceremonies alone, which featured a parade of 8,000 gymnasts. The socialist press described it in glowing and at times creepy ways. <laughs> we have an excerpt on this one. This is the, the powerful battalion. Who wants that one? Sarah? Frank. Powerful battalion? Powerful battalion. Creepy description of these. What's what's your what's your socialist media voice? Uh, like a powerful battalion of the proletariat behind a sea of red flags, living lines and diagonals, well-trained harmonic bodies, only dressed with short black trousers, stood stiff like stone pillars, or waved in the cadence of the music. It was an unforgettable sight of health, life, and strength, an instinct united tanned bodies. The female gymnasts were another fabulous sight, the bodies of future mothers bending in the sunlight. Yeah. I want to go back to before. <laughs> Train, trained harmonic bodies or like synced harmonic bodies is an interesting turn of phrase. I like that one. I kind of feel like we could have stopped after that one. Yeah. That's at times creepy ways. A 1,200-member choir sang the Internationale beneath the slogan, No More War. Yes. Good. Finally. This is fine. The French, in particular, were warmly welcomed by their German comrades. There were athletic events and gymnastic displays, along with musical marches, children parades, and a massive 60,000-person performance titled Workers' Struggle for the Earth. So they had, like, these massive performances that I think are, like, kind of the precursor of what you see whenever you see things coming out in North Korea. Or even, like, in the opening ceremonies in Beijing, they had, like, all those people mm. performing at once. It was, like, this idea of we're all going to be extremely athletic at the same time communist idea of sure now did they did they in that case bring back the gymnastics method where we all just run out into the field and be extremely athletic at the same time for, yeah for points because that system seems like it fits with this model yeah i think i think that was they, they said the <laughs> gymnastics displays so they didn't have gymnastic competition you know that kind of thing mm. so as successful as this was, there were fundamental disagreements between the communists of the Soviet Union and the socialists of Western Europe. No! Yes. This led to the Soviet Union establishing the Red Sports International, RSI, which took a hardline stance between both the bourgeoisie of the IOC and the socialists of the SWSI. Eventually, the Germans of the SWSI kicked the RSI out of their events, and the RSI started their own. The Workers' Winter Olympics and the Moscow Spartakiad, both in 1928. So we'll talk about that more next time and what became of these movements in the late 20s and early 30s. 
is generally nothing good. I feel for like the Germans. I feel like there's a lot to like in that premise of not liking the bourgeoisie or the National Socialists, but apparently it didn't work out. Well, nothing worked out for the National nothing Socialists. Nothing worked out for Germany. anybody in Europe in the 1930s. I just say the National Socialists in Germany had a particularly rough time in the 30s. So, uh, and the 40s, it didn't get any better. Um, one of the other sports-related events that started during this time and spawned, spawned an entire Olympics-adjacent movement that is still growing today is the Death Olympics. The Death hmm. population in France was unusually well-organized and had considerable political capital. This was born out of a really awful thing that happened in 1880, when the Second International Congress on Education of the Deaf was held. There was only one deaf educator at the Congress. Everybody else was hearing. So that's not a great sign. That's not a great start. They decided that only oral language should be taught to the deaf and that all sign language should be eliminated. So, okay, we've gone from <laughs> all but one of these people is not deaf to... Most of these people don't actually know what the word means. <laughs> they know. They just think that sign language makes them too insular, so we shouldn't be teaching them how to do it. So they should just not speak. They no, should just they not should, communicate. They should communicate with words. It's just a crutch. They shouldn't use it. I don't know what the logic was. It's very, <laughs> like, it seems. Absurd. Just. Okay. Did they then have conference for the blind where they're just like you should just read books you idiots like what uh, it's just, okay it's i'm the gonna equivalent. Mm. i mean the french deaf community really galvanized against these awful ideas and one of the things that grew out of this solidarity was the first sports club for the deaf these clubs were explicitly open to women as well as men which was revolutionary at the time and despite these sports clubs, which were multiplying in number and had extensive history of participation by the mid-20s, deaf athletes were prohibited from participating in the Olympics. The excuse given was that it, quote, wasn't safe for them. <laughs> I have so many questions and yet so few questions. Uh, and the fact that they communicated via sign language and the hearing organizers and officials couldn't understand sign language meant they were considered, quote, clannish. And Hold on. Untrustworthy. There's every language in the world at these games. Yep. You have tons of languages that not all judges can understand. Yep. You can probably deal with one more. Nope. They're I'm gonna flip your. I'm gonna flip your kitchen table. I'm so yeah, mad right now. They're untrustworthy because they use their hands to talk. That's witchcraft. We let the Italians in. <laughs> the Italians. Okay, uh, we. They're also untrustworthy. You just said the one guy we mentioned was cheating. <laughs> A man named Eugene Eugene Rubens Alcase Alcase. A metal worker, cyclist, and deaf political activist founded a sporting newspaper specifically for the coverage of deaf athletics in 1914 called Sportsman Silencio. <laughs> That's a good title. Fed up with exclusion and mistreatment at the hands of hearing-dominated amateur athletics, by 1924 they had organized to host the first Deaf Olympics. The Deaf Olympics were held in Paris and were the first event of its kind specifically designed to showcase the athleticism and competition among disabled athletes of any kind. This later inspired the Special Olympics and the Paralympics, all of which are now IOC-sanctioned events. 
once they realize they can make some money off of this, they're like, hey, we'll just run it. For, we'll we'll be in charge of this. It's official. It's affiliated. It's like licensed. <laughs> deafness is not a, and I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, someone feel free to correct me. But it's not a really an advantage or disadvantage to most of these sports. No, I mean. I guess the most you could say is like starting signal. When it yeah, goes. if you can't hear the starting pistol, that one's bad. But like, but I mean, every, you could use a light bulb yeah, or something. Yeah, and yeah, all the jumping stuff, all the swimming, you can do. Yeah, it. I mean, I think swimming, the starting signal is a no, is a beep. Oh. Mm. But anything, anything you have with like beeps or starting pistols or whatever, you could probably do some kind of light signal. But too. even assuming that they're not gonna take that affordance for you, because they're not, because it's nineteen twenty whatever, like. Yeah. Even still, most of those sports, like, you're the, you're the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's incredibly stupid. Uh, uh, Special Olympics and Paralympics, all of which are now IOC-sanctioned events. The Deaf Olympics are still held every four years. The most recent one was held in, 19, in 2017 <laughs> in Samsun, Turkey. So. And that's it for this half of the 1924 games and uh yeah i feel like we had a lot of um i don't know if history is quite the right word but a lot of uh new techniques that have stuck around showed up in this olympics which i think is an interesting milestone yeah yeah there's a lot of like the the events that are kind of the core events are really starting to solidify now like we got rid of the standing jumping the, the a lot of the extra the throwing sports. events there was you're there just mad about the horse jumping horses obviously I want to jump over some horses. We still have water polo. It's not the same when you know it. It's aqua dressage. It's not the same We still have uh, walk races. We still have dressage. <laughs> <laughs> Speed walking. You know, swinging your hips. No, that's borderline <laughs> jogging. <laughs> Careful. We have one foot on the ground at all times. <laughs> I still maintain that the... Number one skill being tested by race walking is the ability to cheat and jog without getting caught by judges. That's a skill. It is. <laughs> it is a skill. I mean, technically, a lot of the Olympics are how to cheat and not get caught. Well, yeah. the Soviet Union hasn't entered yet. I don't know if you've watched Icarus. <laughs> I have a million percent watched Icarus. Icarus is a very good. Yeah, Icarus movie. rules. Actually, <laughs> good. Actually. It goes off in a direction I was not expecting. But I think we've talked about Icarus on this podcast before. It's great. I'm going to keep bringing it up. And they never did anything wrong. And no one ever did anything wrong. That's what we learned watching <laughs> Icarus. Everyone was on the up and up. What did we learn here today? Don't ask questions again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop, stop trying to make a documentary. <laughs> or or go into hiding. If you ask too many questions, sure. you're going to have to go into witness protection. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it If for today. I will say, we didn't really have an overarching theme in this one. I think probably the the big looming specter at this point is World War II and kind of the rise of fascism. Germany's going to be coming back soon. Soviet Union's going to be I'm going to get to use that point. explicit tag. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the closer we get to 1936, and then 1936 is kind of going to be a low point. Um, in terms of those things, but yeah, I think the low point is still human zoos. I mean, over Nazis, there are it's so hard, many low points. There are, oh, it's not, so hard to pick yeah. a favorite. <laughs> I was gonna say, the, I mean, the the human zoos did kind of lead 
to Nazis. It was, like, okay. it was, not it very, was all bad. Yeah, it, it wasn't, doesn't have uh, to be compared. These weren't exactly separate things. It turns <laughs> out, oh, they did a lot of bad, a lot of choices were made. Yeah. But yeah, this was a relatively high point. We just had some mild sexism. Yeah, and uh, really bad racing conditions. And the uh, Pavo Nermi is kind of my hero in this and how much he hated publicity or talking to anybody. I love to just, like, running through and then just keep running straight into the locker room. Yeah, he, like, does Like, if they'd let Marshawn Lynch do that, he would have. Yeah, he would have been a much happier person, I think. I would have just kept going right into the locker room. Yeah. I'm good. I don't want to talk to any of you people. (laughs) I'm just here so I don't get fined. Yeah. I would be furious if that was part of my job. Honestly. Sucks. I think Pavo Nermi would give that same answer. He yeah. would. If yeah. he was forced to to give interviews, he would have said the exact same thing. Yeah. But the NFL treats his athletes like commodities and then throws them away when they're used up. I feel like I'm, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the like socialists were right. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, anyway, if you enjoyed it and are into our sporadic publishing schedule, be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Follow us on Twitter at Olympic Size Cast. Don't bother trying to find us on Tumblr because they decided we are on, uh, ex- we have explicit content on our blog. Everyone, everything's explicit content. We are not. Is Tumblr been, the one that was bought and sold for a loss of $3 billion? Yes. Uh, not, well, not, billion. Not $3 billion, $1 billion. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a significant difference. $3 billion, $3 trillion. <laughs> infinite amount numbers of have no meaning yeah um somebody calculated how much each individual tumblr account cost verizon <laughs> that was that's I actually beautiful it was like a couple hundred bucks or something i can't remember what the numbers broke down to and everybody had like a couple everybody had like 15 tumblr blocks yeah right they made it very easy well yeah we, we technically have olympic size cast has a tumblr that is marked not safe for work and i appealed incredible and they, they never got back to me no one's manning that i don't know why <laughs> they don't have anybody looking at the site right now are you kidding me i don't know why uh it was ever marked not safe for work all, all i robots. do is post i swear that matter. that one was not my fault. half of my uh so my art portfolio was hosted on tumblr and half of it was marked explicit and i don't no, none of it's explicit. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is, nothing is, nothing can even be cons- construed as explicit. No pictures of sand dunes. No, no <laughs> dunes. <laughs> like, yeah. Th- literally all I posted on our Tumblr was links to uh, episodes of the podcast. Oh, those are dirty, dirty links. And I edit out all the cuss words. It's like we don't even I don't, have... Yeah, I don't know like, what you want to say. They made an algorithm do it, and it doesn't... It has no idea what it's doing. <laughs> it doesn't... It's, it's just a robot that, like, keeps getting turned on by I weird stuff. What you're forgetting... And it's marking yeah, it as explicit. You're forgetting about the basketball team of Rasputin's. <laughs> Because that That's what did is it. the most erotic content that it's anyone true. has ever seen. That's what did it. It was too hot for the internet. And now it's gone. I mean, it's it, still on our... Pouring uh, one out for five real ones. It's still on our SoundCloud. The Rasputin basketball team. It's still on our Twitter. Pour it's, out five Rasputins. Never forget. <laughs> I'm going to make that our new, like, cover image. <laughs> five Rasputins We're going to get banned. Basketball. You want us to be banned? Ra, ra, Rasputin. No, it's too sexy of a song. Anyway, I've tried to appeal this decision. They won't respond to me. Uh, and our email is olympicsizepodcast at gmail.com. So tell us what we need to know about uteruses. 
<laughs> if you are or know an OBGYN, please get in touch. If you if you have or we, know what a uterus is. We have no idea. We actually have no... We are completely unqualified to be talking about uteri. Anyway, we, we should wrap this up before we get even sillier. And what just happened to my waveform? Okay. Uh, good save, night, everybody. Save as waveform. <laughs> good night.